0: Landry for the courage and the desire to lead a song. Great job tonight, Landry. Tonight's scripture reading will come from Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Acts chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called? On this name in Jerusalem, and has come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priests. But Saul increased all the more in strength, and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this is the Son of God, Jesus the Christ. First of all, I'd like to commend Scott for having the courage to get up here and read Scripture. (laughs) Good job, Scott. For those of you who perhaps have not been here for the last couple of Sunday evenings, I have been uh, engaged in a brief three-part series on the will of God. And I'm addressing this subject. Uh, I realize one of the cardinal rules of preaching is don't answer questions that people aren't asking. But I can say as a gospel preacher for quite some years now that one of the probably most often asked questions that I get, other than where did Cain get his wife, is uh, what is the will of God for me? I remember distinctly having a fellow in my office when I was preaching at another place who said, I still don't know what it is God wants me to be when I grow up. And the thing is, he was in his 70s. But that's not unusual. Unusual. It's very common for people to come, even in their golden years, and say, I still don't know what it is that God wants me to do. Of course, the, uh, the corollary to that, by the way, is the fellow who said, I have found that the first 50 years of childhood are the most difficult. That may well be true as well. What is it that God wants us to do with our lives? Whenever I am po- have posed that question, I always respond in, in terms of, well, are we talking about God's general will? Or are we talking about God's specific will? God's general will is is pretty easy to address because we can see principles and precepts in Scripture that will direct us in the right direction. That that is that God will be pleased with our lives if we fall within these criteria, these parameters. But in terms of specific will, I, I can't help people because I don't know what it is that God wants me specifically to do. That is. Sometimes our idea of of, of whatever the will of God is is almost borders on Calvinism. That is that God has preordained and predestined exactly where it is that you're supposed to live, what city that you're supposed to live in, what job that you have to uh, be involved in as a career, who who it is that, that you're supposed to marry, and all of those minutia that God has supposedly worked out in his mind. And unless you... Uh, toe the line and you meet all of those criteria then you're not going to probably be very happy very fulfilled and certainly not accomplish God's will with your life I don't believe that I believe God can use you wherever you are I believe God can use you in any circumstance and you may wind up living in a city that you never could see yourself living in and yet God can use you not only use you but use you in a powerful way You might wind up being married to someone that you never imagined that you would be married to, but God can still use you if you have that willingness that we talked about last Sunday night. Two Sunday nights ago when we began this series, I mentioned that your greatest desire should be to know the will of God, and your greatest delight should be to do the will of God. And I also warned that the greatest danger in your life is to fail to do God's will for your life. And I I still hold that. Two Sunday nights later, I still want to submit that for your consideration. We also, last Sunday night, no, maybe two Sunday nights ago, debunked six myths as it pertains to the subject of the will of God. I'm not going to go through those descriptions like I did last Sunday night in review, but I will mention that they were the map myth, the idea that God has a specific map laid out for you, the misery myth, the missionary myth, the miracle myth, the... Missed it myth: the idea that if God had a will for your life early on, but if you missed it, then sorry, it's too bad. You'll you'll not be able to do His will later in life. And, and by the way, let me say again, as I repeated last Sunday night, it is never too late in your life to do the will of God. Please understand that. And the last myth that we spent some time debunking is the mystery myth. That is, that God plays some kind of celestial game with us. That uh, he wants us to know his will, but he won't reveal it to us. And then he almost ends with that admonition of, but you better not miss it kind of thing. And here we are befuddled in and, and, and this spiritual conundrum, not knowing what it is he wants us to do. Last week we began considering some propositions, some principles, and we were drawing those from the book of Acts. You may want to turn to Acts chapter 9 because that's where we're going back to tonight. And we looked at the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And there's some principles, some propositions that we can glean from that narrative that I believe will help us to understand what God's will for Saul's life was and then to extrapolate that and make application to our own lives. Principle number one is that God's will is promised. You may remember in Saul's situation, he asked, what is it that I'm supposed to do? Chapter 9, verse 6, and then the Lord said, go into the city and there it will be told you what you must do. And so God promised to Saul that my will is going to be made known to you, but you're going to have to go to the city before you'll find out what it is. While that promise was made specifically to Saul, and we acknowledged that in our study last Sunday night, we then spent some time, though, tracing down other passages of scripture that we know certainly are applicable to our situation. Because we realize it's a very valid hermeneutical point to say that just because God promised something to Saul doesn't necessarily mean that that, that promise applies to, in our situation. But there are passages that deal with how that God has planned our life. Every life really is a plan of God and that we can understand these passages in terms of their application to our situation. Perhaps the clearest of which and one of my favorites has to be Proverbs 3 and verse 6. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. What a wonderful, wonderful promise that is. And then there were three things about the will of God that we mentioned. First, there's God's prevailing will. Second, there's God's permissive will. And thirdly, there's God's personal will. The third of those is the idea that this is, and it's a very biblical concept, that God is interested in us as individuals. He is interested in us as, as personal Uh, parts of his spiritual kingdom and that he has a plan and a purpose for our lives that no one can accomplish in exactly the same way. I've said that oftentimes when I preached on evangelism and soul winning, that there are people that, that you can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ that nobody else can reach. You have a sphere of influence that is unique to your life and to your situation. Please understand that. I think it would make a difference. If we realize that we are all uniquely gifted, and, and Paul in Romans 12:68, 8 accommodates our individuality, because he's saying that not all of us are, can do the same thing. We don't all have the same gift. We don't all have the same talents. I suspect that even if it didn't say that in Scripture, we would all come to that conclusion, wouldn't we? We know that that is really the strength of the body of Christ, at least in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we have different abilities, different gifts. And we have different spheres of influence. We can do things in a very unique way. We can reach people that nobody else could reach. Then we consider principle number two, which is that guidance is not only promised but it is also provisional. That is, provided certain things occur, it is conditional in nature. First, there must be a willingness. Second, there must be a meekness. That is the idea, are you teachable? Are you coachable? Third, there must be an openness. We must be open to God's leading wherever it might take us and whatever his will might be for our lives. And then fourth, we talked about the need for yieldedness. It's not enough just to know the will of God. We also need to be willing then to yield to the will of Jehovah God in our lives. Tonight, I want to consider just one other additional principle as it pertains to the will of God for our lives. But I'm going to go ahead and warn you, it has four moving parts. And so we're going to stop on on this last principle But we're going to talk about four aspects of this principle and and hopefully make this come alive for us and make it sound very practical and very applicable, which it is. And then I want us to consider, finally, to sum up these three lessons, the subject of why is it important for us to know God's will? That is, what is our motivation for wanting to do His will in our lives? The third principle, and the last one we'll consider, is that guidance is not only promised and provisional it is also practical that is what god has told us and the directions in which god has pointed us are very practical in nature and i hope that each of us appreciates the value of the practicality of god's word there are times in the bible class every now and then from the pulpit i will say that the book of james is my favorite book in the new testament and if we're in a Bible class and people can respond, I have sometimes heard the question, well, why do you think that is? Why do you like the book of James more than any other book in the New Testament? And my immediate answer is because of its practicality. I love the way that James just makes our Christianity come alive. He tells us, here's what you need to do. I mean, you talk about an owner's manual. There's five chapters in the book of James that just tell us how to live the Christian life on a practical rubber-meets-the-road kind of way every day of our lives. So th- that's the last uh, proposition I want us to consider. But we're going back to Acts 9 to draw that principle from. It's clear that that is the way that God guided Saul in Acts 9. You remember that Jesus appeared to him. There was a bright light. He was knocked down. He was stricken blind for three days and three nights. The Lord spoke to him in an audible voice. I'm mentioning that because the record of the conversion of Saul tells us that and reconfirms for us that in the apostolic age, God guided sometimes by way of miracles. I think I mentioned that in passing last Sunday night. I want us to think about that a little bit more deeply tonight. Even at that time, I'll remind you that that was not the ordinary way in which God guided men and women. But God did at that time work supernaturally in visions and dreams And in miracles. Now it's outside the scope of this particular lesson for us to talk about the design and the duration of the miraculous. But suffice it to say that while God still could operate miraculously today, he does not. That is not the way God has chosen to intervene in the lives of humanity. Miracles ceased when the last persons upon whom the apostles laid their hands to confer the gift of miracles when they died. And you might want to look at Acts eight eighteen and 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 10, and I think that you would come to the same conclusion. But having said that, I believe that we would all agree that this very direct operation of God in talking to and dealing with Saul on the road to Damascus was miraculous. That was not the normal way that God interacted with people. First today, I want to suggest that we are guided by the Word of God. That probably comes as no surprise to you. And you would probably have been disappointed if I would not added this to the list. I think last Sunday night I mentioned in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is where Peter says that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And that's one of the reasons why you and I are so adamant. We're so convicted on our understanding of and our belief of the Bible as all that we need in order to make it from earth to heaven. I believe that we're all in tacit agreement on that point. And there are many passages of Scripture that we could look at in considering that point. But think about it. In Acts 9 here, in addition to appearing to Saul miraculously, God spoke directly to him. There was that bright light. And then Saul heard a voice, and it became clear that it was the voice of the Lord. And in response to Saul's question about, Who are you, Lord? Acts 9, verse 5, Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You can't get any more direct and personal than that. And Saul had already, I remind you, heard Stephen preach one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Back up two chapters, look at Acts chapter 7. Saul was there when Stephen preached the last sermon he would ever preach. Because I remind you that in that occasion, when the preacher got through with the sermon, they killed the preacher. Now, don't take that too far but he was there in fact he was standing by the way holding the cloaks of those who actually killed Stephen after he had preached that great sermon I'm just saying that in that sermon Saul was hearing about the Lord but now when he's on the road to Damascus he is actually in a very personal and direct way he is hearing from the Lord now the Lord is speaking to Saul And remember that Saul was a Pharisee. That just means that he was steeped in the word of God. It was not uncommon for him to hear religious instruction. So nothing is surprising about any of this. All, All of this began to come together, though, on the road to Damascus. as Saul was hearing this divine message. But even then, God did not tell Saul the answer to his question, what must I do? Told him he needed to go to the city. I'm telling you as plainly and as forthrightly as I know how tonight, and please take this home with you if you forget everything else we've talked about tonight, the will of God is found in the Word of God. I want to say that again. The will of God is found in the Word of God. And that means that we should never, here's a warning, we should never seek the will of God concerning something that God has already clearly commanded, something something that God has already clearly authorized, or that God has clearly forbidden. Those things are both arrogant and dangerous. If God has spoken on the subject, that settles it forevermore. I'm just telling you, don't, don't seek God's will about what the mission of the church ought to be. We have that already. And it's to go preach the gospel to every creature and baptize those who believe, Mark 16:15 and 16. Don't seek God's will about what our life priorities ought to be. We've got that already. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these material things will be added unto you. Matthew 6 and verse 33. Don't seek God's will outside of Scripture about whether you should be faithful to your marriage vows or not. No, we've already got that. God has clearly stated in his word his will in regards to those areas of our lives. You see, it's both foolish and wicked to try to know the will of God apart from the word of God. If God's word has spoken on the subject, that settles it for eternity. If God has says it in his word, you can mark it down, you can make out a deposit slip, and you can go and take it to the bank. That is God's will for you. And that was Paul's confidence, and it should be ours. That God has given us through his inspired word all that we need in order to know what to do in order to be saved. And then how to live as saved individuals to full spiritual maturity in Christ. That's Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 15-17, through 17, if you want the Bible affirmation for it. Second. Here's a second aspect of God's will that we're considering tonight, and that is we're also guided by the people of God, the word of God, and also the people of God. Have you noticed in your Christian walk that we are privileged to learn from other people? If you're smart, you do. If you're wise, you're going to learn from everybody that you can. I can remember sitting in a college class one time, in a Bible class, by the way, the man who happened to be the chair of the Bible department at the time told us preacher boys, because it was a class for preachers, he said, pick a feather from every bird and you'll be a wise man. That was his way of saying, learn something from everybody. Learn something from everybody you meet and then that will help you to understand and be, and be wise. So you're going to find that God will use other people to help you know his will for your life. And sometimes not just to reveal things that you didn't know before, but also to reaffirm certain convictions. Listen to scripture in regards to Saul's situation. This is Acts 9, verses 10 through 12. The Bible says, now there was a certain disciple at Damascus called Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here am I, Lord. So the Lord said to him, arise and go to the street called Straight. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is praying. And in the vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Don't miss that. God clearly in that account was using Ananias as an instrument to make his will known to Saul. I want to broaden that for just a moment to our own situation. God has always used men and women, to make his will known to man. Not even to the angels has he entrusted that holy task. Whenever God wanted his will known to lost humanity, he always used other people. Never angels, never any other way, always through man has his word come. And then in Acts the 8th chapter, you may remember that Ethiopian eunuch and the account of his conversion. And how that, that old boy was riding in a chariot, had already been to Jerusalem to worship, And he's traveling all of those, literally hundreds of miles back home, and he's using his time wisely. The Bible says he has his Bible open, even tells us where he was reading from. He was reading from Isaiah 53, and he was honest and humble enough to know that he didn't know everything. And so the Bible says that when Philip, as per the Holy Spirit's instructions, joined himself to that man in the chariot, He saw him reading from Scripture, and his first question, here's a great opening question, by the way, if you're trying to begin a spiritual conversation. He asked the man, and you well know this, do you understand what you're reading? And you may remember that the eunuch's response was, how can I unless someone should guide me? I think that uh, only reaffirms the point we're trying to make. God can make his will known even through the wise counsel of other people. Here's an instrument of God, Philip, being used to bring the message to the Ethiopian eunuch. I'd like to think that God is using me right now to help you in terms of spiritual instruction. And you, in turn, can be used of God to help other people, not just when you leave this church building, but also before you leave it. I I love this congregation for a number of reasons, but one is it's so hard to get rid of you. I mean in the best possible way. I mean, there are times when it's an hour or more before I, I vacate the building, and there are all—I don't think I've ever been the last. Well, maybe a couple of times. I've been the last one to leave. There are pockets of people standing around talking and encouraging and 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 well, yakking. But I mean, uh, but but you're you're here and you're fellowshipping, and sometimes there's some pretty intense spiritual conversations that are going on. But when we leave this place, we also need to understand that we are instruments of God, to be used by him to take his message to those who've never heard it. If you're a child of God right now, let me tell you something. You, at this moment, know more about the word of God than 98% of the people who are walking around outside this church building. That's not bragging, but that is a reality. Because many of you have grown up in in a church setting. You've sat in Bible classes. You've sat under spiritual instruction. And for that reason, you're often going to find the will of God in the context of a Bible-believing church and with other believers in a very wonderful way. Now, we ought not to be willing only to share what we know with others in order to help them go to heaven. That's part of it. But we also need to be willing to stand on anyone else's shoulders if it will help us see further Note that God confirmed to Saul here in Acts the ninth chapter that the man who was coming to him, and, and don't you think that uh, otherwise Saul would have had, needed to have asked for some ID? How do I know that you're come from God? But we have that specifically included in this narrative, that, that this man who's coming to talk to you is from God. That just means he was sent from me. He came by way of my instructions. And I'm just saying, if you're getting instruction, if you're getting encouragement, if you're getting guidance from someone about matters of eternity, your soul is at stake. So listen and heed accordingly you need to make absolutely certain that that person who is giving you instruction who is giving you counsel knows god's word and god's will himself or herself otherwise the old axiom from scripture about the blind leading the blind immediately comes to mind let me also say thank god for people who can and will give wise counsel Proverbs 24.6 says, For by wise counsel you shall wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. I, I believe it was Lee Iacocca when he was head of Chrysler Corporation, and they were doing very well back in the 70s or 80s, I suppose. But Lee Iacocca pretty much turned the Chrysler Corporation around, and, and they were ma- actually making some money. But I remember in one of his biographies, someone asked him what was the key to his success in business. He said, Oh, that's easy. You just surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. And I think there's a lot to be said spiritually for that as well, isn't it? We don't know everything there is to know. People have studied parts of the Bible that we never even looked at. They have knowledge and instruction and wisdom that can help us in our Christian walk. We would do well to listen to them and to heed that counsel. So don't get so arrogant that you can't learn from other people. Third, we're also guided by the wisdom of God. And you may think that's a redundant point, but let me point out some things in which this differentiates from, from the other things that we've already said. Notice there in Acts 9, specifically in verses 20 through 22, the Bible says, and I'm just kind of boiling it all down for right now, immediately he, that is Saul, preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, I realize how synopsized this account of Saul's conversion is while other authors perhaps would have used chapters and maybe even entire books to tell us how that Saul was approached by the Lord himself on the Damascus road and all of the things that were involved in that we just got a few few brief verses in Acts the ninth chapter that tell us about how the greatest gospel preacher of all time other than Jesus himself came to be a champion of the faith and that's a wonderful thing but but with the, in that context, appreciate. Remember, this is a man who had just recently been a hater of Christianity. He has been a persecutor of Christians. And in the very next paragraph, what's he doing? He's preaching Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't there wonderful lessons that come from that example? That is the transforming power of the Word of God, folks. That's what God's message can do in the hearts of men and women. Look at the next verse. And then all who heard were amazed. So that is when they heard this Saul preaching. Otherwise, back up two verses, and you would have had these people running for the hills when they heard that Paul is in or Saul is in town. But now, then all who heard were amazed and said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. I think it should be obvious at this point that Saul is now infused with the wisdom of God. Saul has a different understanding. He has a different worldview. I mean, his world has been set on its ear. And the Bible says in Ephesians five, fifteen through 18, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but is wise, understanding, verse 17 says, what the will of the Lord is, and do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. James 1, 5 says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men liberally and does not upbraid, and it will be given him. God is the one who gives out wisdom. But that begs the question, what is wisdom? I'm suggesting that while there are a number of definitions of wisdom, in the context in which we're looking tonight, I want to suggest That while God gives out wisdom, the wisdom that we're looking at and thinking about tonight is the ability to see things from God's point of view. We now are looking at things from an eternal perspective rather than from an earthly perspective. And, And when you become a Christian, and when you totally surrender your life to the Lord, and you, when you commit your heart to his cause and you walk in the spirit and you're filled with the spirit, just as Paul says that we must do in Ephesians 5, then you're going to find out that you now have the mind of Christ. Philippians 2.5, we looked at that this morning. And don't be afraid to use your mind. I want to say that again. Do not be afraid to use your mind. Why would God renew your mind in this spiritual transformation that we call conversion to Christ if he does not then want you to use it as you follow him and his footsteps as a disciple? We now have the mind of Christ. We're trying to continue to cultivate and develop the mind of Christ every day that we live now that we're ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Our worldview has changed completely, just as surely as Saul's did. And we see that what we once thought was important and what we once thought was not important really is. You see, conversion to Christ is is a game changer. We're now looking at the world and and at life with what Paul calls in Ephesians 1.18, enlightened eyes. Isn't that a beautiful way to, to express it? You're looking at the world and at eternity with enlightened eyes. The will of God, folks is not just emotionalism. It isn't getting damp around the eyelashes and warm around the heart and getting goosebumps and liver shivers, as one old boy used to call it. No, it's just sanctified common sense, and it's ours for the asking. Get your motive clear, get your heart right, and then you do what you think is best and in line with what you've read in this owner's manual that we refer to as the Word of God. But again, don't be afraid to use your mind. Know that it's been transformed by redemption and by sanctification. You've got a different way of looking at things. Dr. J.I. Packer used to say that, and I'm quoting now, wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and the highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. And that's exactly right. So always remember that James said, if you need wisdom, God is the one to ask. And he will not scold you for asking. God will give you the wisdom that you need to navigate the waters of life. Fourth, we're guided by the providence of God. We've mentioned this in a couple of the previous lessons, but I need to end with a consideration of the providence of God tonight. In Acts the night chapter, beginning with verse 23, you find out that when Saul was preaching Jesus, he runs into a great deal of difficulty. Now, let me stop and take one half step back for a moment because again, this is a synoptic account of the conversion of of Saul, and isn't it amazing that in the same chapter in which Saul is converted, you find him then preaching Christ, convincing people, confounding the Jews with his words that Jesus really is the Christ, the very thing that he's been opposing for the, uh, the balance of his life up to that point, but here still in Acts the ninth chapter, Paul is out preaching and he gets into trouble, isn't that a microcosm of the Christian life? If you, if you live right, you're going to get in trouble sometime. I'm here to tell you that Jesus did not come to get us out of trouble. He came to get in trouble with us and to see us through to the end of the battle. It does not mean, though, that Saul was no longer operating within the will of God. Some people would look at that superficially and say, well, if he got into trouble, that means he wasn't no longer doing God. No, 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 no. Oftentimes, doing the will of God is what will get you into trouble. So just go into it with your eyes open if you're thinking about becoming a Christian. That's not bad, by the way. That's that's a very good thing. So don't get the idea that if you get into the will of God, it's all going to be all honey and no bees for the rest of your natural life. Here's what the Bible says about Saul's troubles. Now, after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known this is 23 through 25, became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him, and the disciples took him by night and let him down over the wall in a large basket. Can you imagine that scene playing out? Here's this great Saul. And remember, before all of this, he was a big shot, had the equivalent of three PhDs, and here he is in a basket being let down over the wall. And you have to wonder With the immediacy of all of these things transpiring in that short period of time, did Paul ever ask himself, what have I signed on for? What have I gotten myself into? But I don't believe he ever asked himself that question. He was willing to pay whatever price was necessary. So here's, here's this scholar being let down over the wall in the basket. You can imagine the humility of the thing, and yet he's doing all of that within the framework of the will of God for his life. He's doing exactly what God now wants him to be doing. We're talking about the providence of God here. And the point that I'm trying to make is this. There is a God who watches over the affairs of men and women, even in our day in the 21st century, 2,000 years later. They planned to kill Saul, but God let him know about their plans. And so there is that unseen hand that guides. And that's the providential hand of God. One last question. Because I need to sum this all up. All three lessons in one fell swoop. I could take all of these practical principles and put them into just... One word, and it's going to sound rather simplistic when I say it, but I'm going to say it anyway. The will of God for your life is Jesus, just Jesus. Now, that isn't pious talk. That isn't bumper sticker talk. The church, I remind you, is the body Christ is the head. Is that right or wrong? That's right. Well, what is the will of of my body? It's my head. I don't want my hand to have a will of its own. I don't want to wake up in the morning and, and my hand says good morning Randy, today I'm going to scratch your face. I'm going to put some food in your mouth. I'm going to write some letters for you. I'm going to come. No, I don't I I don't want my my hand to wake up with its own agenda. I want my hand to do whatever my head tells it to do and whenever it tells it to do it. No, the will of Randy for his hand is his head. And so who is the head of the church? It's, it's Jesus. You take all of these things, whether it's the providence of God, the people of God, the spirit of God, whatever it is, and you put one big overarching name above it, and and it's just Jesus. That's what we talked about this morning. That's why it's so important that God's people in this church specifically be a Christ-centered church. It's so important that our lives be Christ-centered lives. Just, Just fall in love with Jesus and say to Jesus what Saul said to Jesus. Lord, what do you want me to do? And whatever it is, be willing then to do it. Now, he may use a lot of different ways to show you his will. But I'm telling you, the will of of God for your life in a nutshell is Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the head of the church. And you're to surrender to him in every aspect, in every nook and cranny of your life. Don't you think that's one of the reasons why in Matthew 28, when Matthew was giving his account of the Lord's Great Commission, he said, here's what you need to do. Go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he said, teaching them to observe what? All things whatsoever I've commanded you. And then I will be with you always into the end of the world. A part of the evangelism teaching process when we're trying to talk people into becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ needs to be Concurrent with the understanding that when you become a disciple... Everything Jesus has commanded is going to be something that you will want to do in your life. When you find out what it is from your private study of God's word, you're going to immediately say, that's what I need to be doing. Whenever you find out that this is in disaccord with the will of God, that this is displeasing to God, you're going to say, I'm going to leave that alone. Or I'm going to at least work on breaking that bad habit and replacing it with a good one. I want to do God's will with my life. Lord, what will you have me to do? Finally, let me just share, and I promise these are very, very brief, one-sentence kinds of explanation. Three principles about the will of God that I think that you will be find universally true and workable. First of all, the will of God for your life is for your highest and greatest welfare. It is not something you have to do. It is something you get to do. Everyone, as I suggested in lesson one, would want to do the will of God if they just had enough sense to want it. If they really understood just how much God loves us and wants only what is best for us. Second, the will of God will never take you. Where well, the power of God and the grace of God cannot enable you and keep you. And third, and I want to end this with this one, you are free to choose. You have always been free to choose. You will always be free to choose. God will not force his will upon you. You're free to choose his will. Or you can reject his will. That's the way he wired us. That's the way he made us. What you are not free to do. Listen to me, church. I'm not through. You are not free not to choose. A choice must be made when we're confronted with the will of God. And yet you may adamantly say, but I won't choose. Guess what? You've just chosen. You made a choice. You see, you're free to choose. You're not free not to choose. And pay attention here. You're not free to choose the consequences of your choice. Whatever you choose in life, whether it's the will of God or outside the will of God, there will be consequences or blessings. You are not free to choose those. They are handed out. You make a choice, the choice chooses for you. You're free to jump out of a 20-story building if you want to. That's your choice. But then the choice chooses for you when you hit the ground. I hope you get what I'm saying. You're not free not to choose. And you're not free to choose the consequences of your choice. And I can't tell you how important and how practical that is. Over the years, I have talked to quite a number of people who have said as, as Christians who found themselves outside the will of God, maybe with just one choice in their life, to say something along the lines of this is not what I had planned And this is not what I wanted. I had no idea that it would turn out like this. Just one action in their life changed the entire course of their life. And why is that? Because we're not not free to choose the consequences of our choices. That choice is made for us. So you really are the sum total of all your life choices. The wisest thing that you and I could do is what? Do what Saul did. Ask that first question that he asked when he was confronted with the Lord. Lord, who are you? And then do yourself a favor and spend the rest of your life in this book finding out who he is. And here's God's guarantee. The more you learn about Jesus by looking at this book, the more you'll love him. And the deeper your conviction will grow that I want to do only what he wants for me. And then ask the second question that Saul asks, and that is, Lord, what do you want me to do? If you're outside of Christ tonight, that's clear. God wants you to be a part of his spiritual kingdom, his saved people. Through your faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, the Lord himself will add you to his church this night while we stand, while we sing.